I'm Verite, and you're listening to Anatomy of an Artist, a podcast about people, the art they create, and the business behind their art. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Anatomy of an Artist. My guest this week is multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, and frontwoman of Deep Sea Diver, Jessica Dobson. Jessica has toured and performed with the likes of Beck, Spoon, Connor Oberst, the AAS, and the Shins. We got to speak about her experience releasing her most recent record, Impossible Weight, her experience being signed to a major label when she was younger, and her transition into independence and autonomy in her own art and decision-making. I'm in love with her most recent record, and I hope you guys love our conversation. But I have just fallen in love with you and your music, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. I am dying to play live again. There's hope for that at the end of the year, but we'll see what happens, you know? Yeah. How have you found that particular thing? Because I know that I, COVID came in the middle of one of my tours and we canceled halfway through. And then I've had three or four tours held and each one keeps getting pushed back. And so are you trying to get back out and perform live as soon as possible? Or are you going to wait to kind of see how everything pans out? Um, I think, you know, we're trying to make plans because obviously, you know, with touring, everything is booked so far in advance and it's, we, we hadn't put any dates in the books up until like a few months ago. Cause it just seemed like we had just gotten off of a lot of touring. Um, right, like right when the pandemic hit was a day after we got back from like months of touring mm-hmm. off and on. And then we released the record and it was just like at that time in October, it was still kind of bleak to just, everyone was just pushing, like you said, pushing dates back and back and back. It's like, uh, I don't know if we should do that to our fan base to announce something and then not have it happen. And so I feel like people are patient and, you know, it breaks my heart, like not to like do the thing that you'd normally do when you put out a record. So it's like we waited, but now we have dates in the books that are not announced yet, but you know, we're hoping for the best. So how does it feel psychologically? Because so much of your history is in touring and obviously you were on tour for months before all of this hit, you know, of having everything stop and now being at home. Has it fundamentally changed your perspective on the creative process or what your plans would have been around releasing a record? Yeah, definitely. I would say, you know, to speak about the positives of it all first, um, I've definitely become a better engineer (laughs) having been Mm -hmm. home like this entire year and having to kind of pivot from one place to the next. Um, Peter and I, my partner who plays drums in the band, we created so much of the content that was surrounding um, the record release. And so a lot of that included pre-taped sessions down here in my home studio, um, you know, and wanting them to sound legit and as exciting as I, you know, would want to hear them back if I was going into uh, World Cafe and all these places that you normally stop on the way 
you know, on a record cycle or radio stations and like you have these little unique performances, but it's like a lot of it was, you know, definitely, um, like a mind melting experience too, of just like, Oh wow, this is not me stepping into the energy of a place. This is me continuing to do the same thing in my basement, which I'm trying my best. We're trying our best. Everyone's like doing their thing, but it was very different. But I, I, the positive is I became a better engineer. So that was great. Yeah. I think that this situation has forced a lot of us to broaden our skill sets I you know spent the majority of last year focusing in on production and now podcasting which is you know coming completely out of left field uh but it is really interesting how we're all kind of proficient in like this digital mode of communication now almost yeah and it is trying to make the best of it it's like this is where we're at and so instead of arguing with you know, the pandemic reality. It's like we have to find the good and leave better. Absolutely. And it was, you know, I definitely had to put to rest. Like it did feel like a slow death of like touring is so much. Um, it brings me so much joy. That's the one of the biggest parts of, of, of playing music that brings me the most joy is hitting the road and actually performing the songs because they've been hibernating for so long. And then you put out the record, especially when, you know, people are digging it. And then to yeah. not have that, it's just like, oh, it really hurts. But it'll come. Yeah, it's like being cut off at the knees. Absolutely. You know, kind of this this record, Impossible Weight, like I feel like that's a literal and <laughs> figurative term currently. Yeah. What weight do you feel like artists are currently experiencing in, you know, this current social climate and you know, the current music industry? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is financial weight because I think of the extent, extended um, team of uh, – or people that are on the team, you know, crew members that aren't getting paid at all. They're not able to do, you know, live stream performances to try to offset income or whatever mm -hmm. it is. It's like they're just jobless. Um, and I think for a lot of bands that – you know, especially those that released right when this hit, not knowing. And then, you know, they've spent all this money for all these campaigns and all this stuff. And and then they couldn't tour on the record. So a lot of musicians are hurting. And we're already scrappy people. Like, I'm sure, you know, it's just like we're constantly trying to find new ways to do this thing without, you know, not being able to pay the – or with paying the bills and, like, staying true to ourselves. And I think this year was extremely challenging – in that regard, um, for a lot of people, um, and everyone's pivoted in different ways, but I think that, yeah, the financial way has been hard for a lot of people. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that, that we're scrappy people, but I haven't taken for granted the fact that as an artist, there's so many ways to pivot. And I think about my live band, and I'm just waiting for the moment where I can call them and be like, cool, we're going, we're good. Because yeah. we haven't even been able to be in the same room together. So it's not right. even like there were things that we could be doing together. Right. And that's part of the weight too, is the togetherness, the connection of like, that has been a huge hole in my heart of like, I am such an extrovert. I have introvert tendencies and I can go away and I can like do my songwriting and have the introvert go to a cabin, write songs, whatever. But I miss people so much like and that's why touring is so important to me, too, is because it's not just my band, but also connecting with the people that are resonating with the music. But, yeah, that's that's a huge weight on people. Our personality has changed, you know, 
Oh, yeah. I think how we fundamentally interact with other people. Somebody brought uh, brought up the other day that, you know, essentially toddlers and, and young children right now have been acculturated to essentially walk to the other side of the street when they see someone. Mm, oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's like, what effect does that have on someone's psychology? Like, it, and it's a very subtle thing. And so I think that we're all just learning to function yeah i do wonder what the psychological implications are going to be even you know i was thinking about if these shows happen that are in the books like will people feel okay like a place can be open but are they going to feel good being there you know like will i feel comfortable being on stage like i don't know if people are going to be wearing masks in the crowd i have no idea what to expect but um eventually i'm sure it'll level itself out but yeah it's it's very very interesting (laughs) I want to take it back for a second. When you were younger, what was your idea of success? I think just getting to do, like getting to perform as much as possible. It never really had, I never thought about the longevity of it or the financial implications. It was just like kind of more in the moment of like, as long as I can perform, that'll be what I want to do and to play music with others. And what were those early performances? Because I know that you were a multi-instrumentalist. And so what was your first instrument and where did that kind of drive and ambition come from? My first instrument was piano. I learned how to play it when I was five and immediately started writing my own music on the piano. Um, Just kind of trying to riff off of all these uh, waltzes and classical, you know, uh, like the watered down versions that I would learn of, you know, later on I would learn the actual versions of these songs, but when you're a kid, they teach you the easy versions of them. Mm-hmm. And then I would try to write, emulate that and then perform for my family. Um, and my, I come from, my mom has a huge Catholic family. So a lot of kids and a lot of cousins. And like, that was my first kind of intro into performing and then recitals. Mm-hmm. And then you start going to school and junior high happens and it's like you have, like for me, the guitar was, that was my identity at the time mm-hmm. of just like, uh, I just wanted to make people excited about music. And so, yeah, I would bring it to school all the time and play for people. That reminds me, I was in guitar club when I was younger, and we used to just cool. do all of these real bad covers. I, I never wound up sticking with the guitar. I, I kind of stuck to keys more. But I just remember playing in the middle school cafeteria yeah. and thinking I was I was the man. You know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I lived for those talent shows. Like, Oh, yeah. They're so fun. And, you know, it's like partly it's, you know, I guess enjoying the attention and the affirmation. I was just watching the Taylor Swift documentary and she talks a lot about this. And I was like, I I can resonate a little bit with that, where if I could go back, I think uh, I would have hoped that my teachers would have taught me a little bit more discipline when things get hard and are not easy because there was a lot of affirmation going on because it's just like, you see this person playing guitar, wanting to get out there, and we want to encourage kids, but sometimes it can be a little much. That's a different conversation probably, but. I mean, I feel like it's a different conversation, but it's also the same conversation in a sense where like a lot of the music industry is based on those affirmations. Right. And I know that like you signed to Atlantic when you were younger. And so I'm really curious, like 
When you were in middle school, high school, playing music, what was your perception of the music industry? And like, what was your expectation um, of signing a record deal? And like, how did that come about? Well, I think growing up in LA, uh, everything felt a little more tangible because I wasn't from a small town in the Midwest. I was surrounded by people getting record deals, people playing clubs all the time, My me sneaking into clubs before you know I was 18 or 21 and seeing my favorite bands and musicians. And so it's kind of around this culture of like movers and shakers and every, you know, just being kind of one degree away from talking to quote unquote, somebody important that might be able to help you. And, um, I think that I was definitely too young to be making a lot of the decisions I was making, but also it was like when these opportunities came around, I didn't really have the mentors to be able to tell me like, Hey, you should probably maybe wait a second before you sign a record deal. Cause in my head, it was just like, Oh, I have to take this thing that came, you know, my way and or nothing will ever come again. Um, and which is hilarious, uh, and wrong thinking, but like, I just <laughs> didn't have any help. So anyways, I did this thing and, um, and then really got a taste of reality of like what the music business was like and the rejection and people not understanding you or, the misogyny, uh, people trying to uh, put what their perception is of your music onto you without listening to you. Um, and so, yeah, there's I got a lot of lessons really early on, which is fantastic. And at that point and, and within that deal, what music were you making that kind of brought you to that situation? And then how how do you feel like the expectation of you and that music kind of shifted under the label's eyes? So at that time, I would say I was very influenced by like Elliot Smith, um, a little bit of Radiohead, Fiona Apple. So a little more in like the left of center singer songwriter world. But mm -hmm. I also had my rock and jangly um, guitar influences, the Smiths, Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, but I was so far from, or just very early on the path of finding my own voice. And so I think, you know, their perception was, I maybe didn't fit the mold of a like major label artist, but they wanted something a little left of center. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of these deals, when you get them that young, they're called like development deals, which mine wasn't called that, but it felt like that yet. I didn't really feel like it was a good development. It was just <laughs> like, Hey, we'll put you with these really um, I mean, I actually remember, like, I was actually very fortunate. The band, I had a band, but they were like, no, you can't use that band. And the producer I ended up working with um, put me in a room with Matt Chamberlain and Justin Meldell Johnson, who Justin is one of my favorite bass players of all time. And, like, I was a huge Beck fan growing up, and he was Beck's bass player. And Matt played for Fiona and I think Toriums too. He's a fantastic drummer. So I had, like, this really dreamy band to play with. But – I don't think they I, – I didn't really know what my voice was at the time, and then I felt really restricted to say anything. Um, and it just – everything felt too too big. Like I was wearing pants that were like 30 sizes too big, and I was just stumbling through life, <laughs> like tripping, o tripping over my, my big-ass pants. Yeah, I identify with that. 
I had always considered myself a really mature, ahead of my years kind of person. And I look back at myself now, you know, at my 17, 18, 19 year old self and recognize, oh, I had no idea who I was. Mm -hmm. And I had no context for what kind of artist I wanted to be. And I had no ability to speak up for myself. And I, I think I take for granted, like, how those things are sometimes learned traits over time and mm -hmm. with experience. Yeah, it's so important. I was just thinking about, um, I love that Sharon Bennett and song 17. Oh, yeah. So great. Just talking yeah. to her younger self, like <sighs> trying to give this like this lit up path or the warning signs to what, what to avoid. But man, yeah, there's so many things I would go back on, but but obviously shaped who I am. So can't complain. Yeah, you know, it's it's all positive and negative and both and. Totally. So there's two things, there's two paths I want to go down. Um, at some point you get out of this deal and I'm curious what that process was like and the feeling was like right after. And then I want to go down the path of, you know, how you got into playing with other acts and with other bands. Sure. Yeah, so what I remember of, getting off of the label I'd recorded two records and then um none of them came out and everything was shifting at the label and I was just very lost in the shuffle so I was able to leave with my masters which was great we and love. yes <laughs> and I turned that into an EP a few years later but in that like f th those two years um the interim I was like were like I invested you know not a lot of money but like I, I invested in a coffee shop um, I was just like totally shifting my focus. I was so burnt out, very low confidence at that point. Um, and, uh, was just, yeah, like not, I didn't want to participate in music the same way. And so it was Peter actually, who I eventually ended up marrying who it came down to, I was living in Long Beach at the time and was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you should be playing music. Why are you running in a coffee shop? He's like, that's fine. But like, you're squandering your gifts. And, I, and he was right. Like I was avoiding it at the time. And so um, basically kind of in tandem with um, thinking about putting out this EP under a different name. I was going to go in the moniker of Deep Sea Diver um, is when I auditioned for Beck. And that was through a friend of mine who was the musical director who originally asked me if I knew anybody that would want to audition, sent off some names. And I was like, hey, maybe I'll just do it for fun. Like I won't get the gig, but I'll just audition and see what happens. And uh, it was crazy. Like three auditions later on my birthday, my 23rd birthday, is when Brian called me up and was like, you're going on tour. We want you in the band. And I was like, what? Badass. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> like, yeah, that's another thing. Like growing up around a bunch of session players, you know, that's that's not – I'm not formally trained. I just play in bands, you know, but I think that's what he wanted. He wanted something raw and I can hold my own in the band, but I'm not a session player. Yeah, but that is so amazing. That's such an amazing opportunity to get and also just be given, right? This idea of we like you because you're not perfectly, God, the only word I can think of is square, uh, but there's like a roughness to coming up playing in bands and not being that formally trained session musician and that aesthetic and sound like I, I can understand why someone like Beck would be like, I want that. 
Totally. And and I have to say, not to knock session players, I know plenty of session players who have so much grit and taste and talent that is not – they didn't get there because they're of their, you know, uh, perfect – theory and like ability to play every note they know how to play the right notes and so they're mm-hmm. amazing session players who yeah aren't necessarily virtuosos but are really good at at emulating or stepping into a situation and becoming you know a part of the band for that recording experience and fe- feeling really natural so I think my my idea of session player was just a, a guy that comes in the room and plays a bunch of sweeps on electric guitar and like <laughs> and like and yeah play like any song at the drop of a hat but you know so can John Bryan and he's pretty fucking cool so am I allowed to cuss on this yeah, yeah. Okay. We're we've we, st- <laughs> we started this podcast trying to not be explicit, but sure. I have ruined that experience. Yeah. For okay. Everyone, cool. So, so now it's a I shouldn't feel bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you just heard me go back and forth about my uh, my love for session players. Um, I, I know a lot that are wonderful. Well, I think that there's a certain intimacy with a live band that it's not always about the best like you said it's about the right Mm -hmm. and the right can actually be someone who is you know not the quote unquote like most technically proficient and and I and I find that to be really exciting especially like when I am auditioning people for for my live band which I've you know I try to keep people as long as I possibly can sure and and make it a family yes yeah when you you. do have those that audition process it is a little bit of magic when you hear somebody come in and interpret your music in a way Mm -hmm. that excites you totally and it's like I love that interpretation of of this song and I never would have thought of that baseline Absolutely. Yeah. And and the older I've gotten, the more I have um, just kind of opened up uh, and welcomed the collaborative experience. There's something, you know, when I was a kid, it was just like, yeah, this is my thing. This is my career. Um, I write all these songs and uh, I want to make sure that like, you know, I protect that. And after playing in bands for the last 10 years, that definitely, I mean, I still have some of that pridefulness in me. Um, that I have to keep in check. But in my best moments, they are collaborative. And uh, whether it's with co-production, engineering, parts, you know, like that are written, whatever. Um, and there's something, yeah, incredibly beautiful because or else I'd be making the same record every time, you know, and that sounds boring to me. Yeah, that's – I feel like if you're not making different records – and hopefully, I guess not better is such a relative term, um, more informed records as mm-hmm. you move forward. Like that's definitely my goal is to look back at my past work and feel as though my current work is one upping it um, yeah. in some way. But I'm really curious, how, how did playing, because you've played with Beck, The Shins, yeah, yeah, yes. It's just like really brilliant and all of these bands that I love so much. How do you feel like touring with bands has informed your own personal artistry, your own songwriting, how you shape your records? Yeah. I think textures are a big thing that I learned in a, in playing in a lot of, of those bands uh, with – and I, I'm talking about like production and uh, creating a world 
um, either for the songs or for the record. And because, you know, uh, there are a million different ways you can take the tonality of an instrument or an energy or a personality or um, having like understanding how to make something feel intimate and then also knowing how to make it rage. You know, it's just like those are all under your fingers in pedals. Uh, the textures you choose are so important. And so I learned a lot of those textures playing with Beck at first. Um, I He turned me on to a bunch of different pedals um, that I had never played with before and phasers and chorus and different delays and fuzzes. And then um, with the shins, James, I love James's songwriting. And so I, as the right hand, because not man or woman, whatever person, you know, taking the lead guitar riffs and singing harmonies, just like by osmosis, just learned a lot of oh, he, you know, often goes to this lick and it really lifts the song, like in this melody. And just like learning how to apply that to my songwriting and make it my own um, with, I played a little bit in Divine Fits um, with Brit from Spoon. And that is really jagged angular guitar playing. Um, and I love that punk uh, gang of four kind of, kind of vibe. And so, yeah, I mean, every, Karen like, crazy amazing front person learned how to step outside of my comfort zone by watching her so yeah there I mean that's just scraping the surface of what I took away and you know there's practical things I learned like how to become a tour manager for my own band to save some money you know and be able to like afford hotels and pay my band like um yeah it's all about what, not what corners can you cut, but like how much can you do on your own without burning out? So I love uh, that you added without burning out, because I think that, you know, for myself, I, I've always had the mon- that similar mantra of like, how much can I do on my own? And for so long neglected the without burning out. Yeah. <laughs> and have just like had a series of burnouts. And you recognize that the, the more you do that, the longer the recovery time is. Right. And so it's like strategically bringing people on, but also recognizing that, you know, being being an artist and being an independent artist, right, you kind of have to be practical and you have to be, you know, savvy. You can always yeah. make it work somehow. Totally. So do you still own that coffee shop? No. Okay. It, it was it went out of business. It was sold and I got a tax okay. I got a tax write-off. <laughs> but yeah, great. Love those write-offs. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. We love tax write-offs, but that that was burning in my mind. But at this time that you're kind of becoming, you know, essentially a go-to person to be touring with all of these bands, what was your project looking like like how did you balance the time with other people and for yourself well the first when I was playing with Beck that year was kind of a wash just because we were on the road all the time um but when I came back that's when I was so hungry for releasing my own music I was like it's time I learned so much was so excited that was the first time I had toured the world I mean even I mean I guess the first time I had toured like outside of California my home town and uh it was just an incredible experience and so it made me really excited to take what I learned and do that for my own career um and then I think let's see release the EP 
started playing around LA again and let's see, that was 2009. And then I guess that was the beginnings of starting to write the first record for Deep Seed Ever. Like, and that would be the first music written apart from taking my masters from what I wrote and my time in Atlantic. Um, and then the release of History Speaks, the first record, was in tandem with me joining the Shins. And I I guess business-wise, it wasn't the smartest to release it at the same time, but I was just like, I'm tired of waiting. Uh, I'll be able to tour in the holes, you know, of when I'm not touring with the Shins. And it worked out, so. Yeah, I would imagine the world you're in with these different groups because I feel like your own music is so complementary to it that the associations greatly help probably your own project's visibility. They do. They, um, I would say it's not like this intense, uh, you know, push of promo. It's like people, it's more so people that enjoy those bands that really love like, Oh, what else, you know, what band is Joe Plummer playing? I guess he was playing drums at the time or Yuki was playing bass. Richard Swift was on keys, rest in peace. Um, and people love, I love this, you know, for bands that I love, like what are their side projects? What are their solo things sounding like? Um, but it can, I would say you should never rest on like, Hey, check out my <laughs> like uh, resume, you know, uh, you can play with the, biggest act but if it sometimes doesn't matter at all like in terms of helping like get your name out per se like you it's this weird alchemy of everything of like when are you is, does it click with people when you're releasing your records it's a talking point for sure mm-hmm. um but it's definitely not everything yeah it's probably like a greater press point than necessarily like you said, a direct one for one. Like if yeah. you love the shins, you're definitely going to right. listen to this. Yeah. So you've been through, I guess, multiple iterations of obviously signed to a major label, mm-hmm. um, participating with independent labels and then self-releasing on your own label, if I'm correct in that. Yes. I guess what is your I guess we know your favorite isn't the major label, but <laughs> what is, what's your preferred mode of operation? And I guess what are the benefits of being with an independent label versus uh, self-releasing, et cetera? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, ideally you're working with, like we talked about burnout earlier, like us, there's, there's a certain le- like threshold you hit when you are self-releasing unless you know your single takes off and then it's out of your hands and it just keeps growing which is so rare um I've really learned that like that's one of the biggest things I learned over the last couple years being around with um I love our managers we've been working with ATO um they're distributing the record and like I knew this but I really learned this over the last couple years of just like you know I think everyone knows the music you make, you know, you have to make the music you, you, you love and, and you stand by, but a good record isn't everything there. There has to be money behind efforts like marketing. And that is so helpful to have, you know, a functioning PR campaign and different people who are good at what they do coming around you and working behind the scenes, they're making phone calls and emails that you don't even know that they're doing, but they're kicking ass 
while you're doing your thing. And for so long, we didn't mm-hmm. have that. We were just doing everything ourselves. And so, and that was exhausting and we weren't good at it. <laughs> so I'm like, so, like so excited to be working with a team of people now who I love and trust and, um, really free us up to be able to focus on the musical side of things. Cause I, I just, I was losing my mind just trying to like, to be the only advocate for yourself, you know, in all these different arenas is like intimidating and it sometimes feels like it's working backwards because you're seen as like, Oh, they don't have anyone else working with them. Like mm-hmm. what's the deal here? You know? Yeah. I think that it's, it's really interesting. The, the independent stigma that can exist and right. Cause I've been independent my whole career and I've worked with, you know, definitely distributors and investors within that and, and found those relationships to be really beneficial. But, you know, sometimes it does feel like you're existing outside. You're like in the lobby of the club and you feel like they're not letting you in. And I think that I've worked really hard over the course of my career and just like talking to other artists to kind of show that like, it's not that we're not allowed in that club. It's like, we're in our own club and this club is, this is a bad metaphor. <laughs> this club is bumping. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Great. I'm just of- going to take that one to the end. I feel yep. like podcasting has showed me that like my instantaneous metaphor ability is shit. It's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but I do understand this idea of like strategically bringing on team members and players to alleviate the burden of things so that you can focus on the music. And I think that, you know, so much time gets dedicated to the business and then you're hung up on all of the no's, right? Because yeah. I think 90% of being an artist, unless you're in the top 0.5%, is being told no. Yeah. Like that door isn't open. Totally. And that can have a psychological toll. Yep, I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts on, you know, the more traditional music industry, you know, physical, tangible CDs, vinyls, and where we've pivoted to, you know, this kind of more digital streaming era, Mm -hmm. a pivot towards singles? Because I feel like the energy I get from you is like you feel like an album artist I want to come and immerse myself in your world so how do you balance you know what feels true to you and what you know the marketplace kind of demands yeah I feel that I mean you know even in this this coming year it's like we released our record in 2020 and I think my question is what is what is soulful to me is it putting out five singles this year no, not so much. Is it putting out a couple of really fun covers, maybe a single or two if that comes about? Absolutely. Because it is important to like keep your name out there. It shouldn't be the driving force behind what you create. But like it's if you can have fun doing it, then great. Awesome. Am I still always going to be an album person? 100%. Like I – that's my escapism is into albums. And in my headphones and uh, being brought to new worlds, which you can – maybe a song can do that. It definitely can make you feel different emotions. But, like, um, I like complete statements or if, you know, the artist is trying to communicate something greater than the single, which is 
most of the time. I'm there for that. Um, I love vinyl. I definitely collect vinyl. Uh, I see DSPs or Spotify, Apple, all that stuff as the gateway into finding what vinyl to buy. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I That's tell smart. Yeah. I tell the people that are fans of our band that I'm saying that all the time. I'm just like, I, I'm not anti these things. I'm all for them to, you know, as a way, a means of the new mixtape or the new thing that helps you fall in love with the, an artist and, you know, are all aspects of it ideal? No, <laughs> like, um, but we're going to find a way to figure it out, you know, how to like, obviously album sales are not the, the, the way to profit anymore, you know, but like, I think, I think fans and people that love music, I think they're really starting to understand how they can step up and support their artists more. And I feel very supported over this last year, like especially in the pandemic, just with Bandcamp. You know, I think they're doing a killer job of how they have their Bandcamp Fridays once a month. Um, that has we've sold so much vinyl because of that and had you know our merch store do probably a hundred times better than if they didn't push that date but they're just basically saying like support artists and all this money goes to them um and it's like the one day a month to unabashedly say like hey buy our stuff and you're not you don't feel like you're knocking people over the head you know no I think that with anything like I feel like streaming while it's fundamentally changed things and kind of like it its effect is inherently good in the sense that it provides access to people who maybe wouldn't have had access to music in these more expensive physical forms like mm -hmm. anybody regardless of how much money you make can log on and really have access to almost all of music and i find that to be a really beautiful thing it's crazy that has had a lot of unintended consequences sure. like essentially devaluing music to the point of, you know, 0 0.003 cents yeah. a stream. And I think what's happening is we're seeing people kind of take a step back now and recognize, oh, streaming, good, right? It's good. It's never going to go away. But how can we create better ecosystems for artists and their fans yeah. That aren't reliant on, you know, these behemoth giant companies and aren't reliant on record labels who are taking percentages that aren't really equivalent to the investments that they made. Right. And I think that I'm really excited for that. And something else you said, it also gives us full creativity in how we release things. Right. And mm -hmm. so it's like I also feel as though I'm an album person. But right now, I'm not emotionally ready to make a record. Yeah. So I'm having a lot of fun releasing singles. And, that's and that's like my plan this year is to release a few singles and a few different styles and a few covers and just like fuck around and not have this pressure of the album. And I think that that's also kind of a beautiful aspect of where we're at in the music industry. Totally. Yeah. Gosh, there's like. I feel like anytime I've tried to write a single, like a standalone, it never works. But I love when they come about and you're like, oh, this is perfect to just put out yeah. on its own. 
Yeah, it doesn't need a sister. It just, it can yeah. be an only child for a minute. And maybe it'll find a sister in six months and then it'll go on an album. Totally. Like, who knows? Yeah, there's no rules. There's literally no fucking rules. <laughs> yeah. How have you compensated for, like, the lack of live in-person energy and intimacy in quarantine? Uh, like, how are you kind of connecting with your fans and your community? And what has been, like, a positive of all of the isolation? I think probably the biggest thing that we focused on, and especially early on last year, was uh, connecting with our fan base through the only means social media, which was for us Instagram Live. And we tried to do it in a very creative way where it wasn't just like, hey, we're going to, you know, every week go live and play six songs and then peace out. Because um, I got very fatigued early on with all the live oh, yeah. streams. It's just like, I don't want to sit here listening to like bad audio and like <laughs> there's no personality happening. It's just like, this is not a show. And I'm saying that for like when I was playing or watching, it's just like, we're not at a show and this like supplements, but it it's not everything. And so for, you know, Peter and I, thankfully we get to live together and do this thing. Like we were... We brainstormed for a while, just like, okay, let's do a weekly show and have it be more like not variety hour. I feel like that cheapens it, but just like we'll build forts and we'll like eat at fake restaurants, like or real restaurants, but they're fake. We would make like stupid Denny's signs or IHOP signs and just, just like being silly, trying to bring some joy, but then also play music. So we play like three songs answer people's questions in real time and try to engage as much as possible. And that really helped our personalities that, you know, we are extroverts and want to connect. And so, and then I think the the crown jewel of what came out of that was our stay home stems where every week we would record um, an audio bit and release it online. And we'd give people, anybody that wanted to participate one week to write a song with it. So it would be either like a vocal line of mine, a guitar riff. The first one was a drum beat that eventually turned into our single of 2020, which was Stop Pretending. And um, yeah, and then you'd get back. We The first week was like 70 submissions, I think, of completely different songs over this drum beat. And it was fascinating. And I think people were just so hungry for like, you know, they didn't want to just feel scared. Like I said, this is an early on in the pandemic and just like they – it was comforting to like participate in this basically global thing that people from all around the world participated and it was just wild and really cool. And I think people will look fondly, you know, back on at least that element of, of last year. And I, I know people were really grateful and we were grateful to have that. Yeah. I feel like it goes back to what we were talking about before. It's like, we're scrappy. And so you, you force us indoors and tell us we can't go see our fans and yeah. like, we're going to find creative ways to do so. And I think that that's like, that's kind of resilience just in action. And I, and I really love that. Yeah. So I'm really curious. I know you quit smoking. Right. Yeah. And you've talked about how that has um, like broadened your vocal range. And I'm really curious 
What sort of creative freedom did that give you? Because I understand, I, I have acid reflux. Mm. And so before I really pinpointed that problem, I was having a lot of vocal issues and it affected my writing and it affected wow. how I performed. And I'm curious what that experience was like for you creatively. Well, it was definitely a newfound freedom of like being able to, you know, just practically go into a studio and not feel like I was taxed after a couple hours of singing and being able to knock out three or four songs in a day versus just maybe one. Like there's just, you know, yeah. consequences from smoking unless you're going for the Tom Waits, you know, sound. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, you know, I think like a lot of times unless you're just a trained vocalist or you're only focusing on vocals, we just forget that our voice is a muscle and you can grow it. And so I th for so long, I kind of felt like I was hitting a ceiling on my range and then I found a new one. It's like, this is sweet. <laughs> I can sing a lot higher and a lot more full voiced and um, a lot more intimately too, which was cool without being a little like sounding scratch. I mean, I wasn't like I was like a two pack a day smoker. It wasn't that crazy, but like. <laughs> we weren't trying um, to sound like Tom Waits. Totally. After. But like there was, you know, a little raspiness that would come in that was maybe undesirable for certain things. And I feel, yeah, I mean, I miss smoking all the time, like just for the, you know, activity of it, of going outside and hanging out with people. I smoked a cigar the other day and it, I felt like absolute shit the next, I felt high <laughs> all the, the entire next day. Like the nicotine just like, I've never smoked an entire cigar and it was for a celebration. And I was just like, you know what? I, I want to hang with the boys. We were sitting outside around a fire pit and wow. Um, I'm sure if I had a cigarette now, it would taste like crap. But uh, anyways, don't smoke. Don't smoke. But also, <laughs> I feel like conquering vices is really, really liberating and, and empowering. Yeah. Um, I tried really hard to smoke when I was younger. Like, I really wanted to smoke. They just made me puke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right? And so I consider myself lucky in that sense because, yeah. like, I really tried because I thought it was so cool. <laughs> but my biggest vice is sugar, right? Oh, yeah. And okay. So just as addicting. I can eat a whole box of cinnamon toast crunch in mm. one sitting and I've cut sugar out of like my life essentially. Nice. How long? Is it really since quarantine. And so no artificial sugar and every once in a while, you know, you need something, but sure. it's been really interesting. The impact of that, you know, mentally of recognizing, Oh, if, if I can do this and have the discipline to do this, how that translates into all of these other avenues. And I've seen it, you know, the, the overall discipline in my life and in my creativity and how hard I can, you know, if I'm sitting and feeling uninspired, the amount of time I'll just sit in it. Yeah. And I love that feeling of like, yeah. it's just empowering. Totally. Yeah. We just, I was just talking to Peter about you know, the, the, the hot word of this last year is self-care. And there is mm -hmm. a lot of self-care and kindness that we need to extend to ourselves and continue to do. But I think like, like you said, there's something very empowering about taking on the task of, you know, um, eliminating things that aren't good for you or pushing yourself in ways that you haven't pushed yourself. And I think a lot of the times the the avenues of confusion happen where it's like self-care, like I just need to you know, participate in like, not what makes me feel good now, but just like 
there can be, I don't know, they can ram up against each other sometimes of where it's just like, well, you might just be sitting there for two months and calling it self-care when self-care mm-hmm. is actually pushing yourself into, you know, giving yourself a deadline of, you know, I'm going to write a song today and I don't care yeah. if it's good or not, but I'm going to finish it and call it done. And that's my self-care because I don't like this two-month time warp that just happened where I watched too much of The Bachelorette. This is my story, okay? (laughs) Yeah, for me, it was Survivor. Mm. Really dark hole of Survivor. Uh, My parents have seen every episode of Survivor because they watch it while they work. And I watched three seasons of Survivor, but I wasn't working, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and... The hard thing about this year is normally you have the relationships around you, the friendships, or maybe the stranger who might speak a word into your life that you're like, oh, yeah, that's <laughs> so true. Um, but we don't really have that as much unless you're constantly, I guess, connecting over Zooms and FaceTime. But, uh, yeah, there's no, there's not those beautiful interruptions of life that often, like, are eye-opening, you know? Yeah, they're, they're inspiration, you know, but I guess we, we do have way more time to really dissect every thought we have. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on. We're, we're, we're nearing the sunset of our conversation and I feel like we've kind of gone to where you've been, but to end, how do you feel like all of these experiences you've had have shaped your current identity and confidence in yourself as an artist oh wow just like over the history of the last since I was a teen doing this thing um I would say I think when I look back I see so many exciting cliff jumping risks that were taken and I think it's scary the older you get to take those risks, especially when you're, I'm married to Peter, who's in the band. We're doing the same thing. We don't have, we don't have a plan B. And that dictates so much of how we can or cannot plan for the future. And, you know, I can go into how it is a shame that our musicians and artists are not taken care of in the United States. And there's so much work to do um, with how art is valued. Um, But uh, I feel like stand like I'm if I could use the metaphor or just an image of just like I feel like I'm standing more on a very concrete foundation and all of those experiences built you know are part of that concrete and I feel a lot more ownership over what I'm doing and knowing how important it is to make substantial and thoughtful decisions um, in the art that I create and who I create with and. I have a much larger gratitude for the musical voices um, speaking into my life and how I'm able to be vulnerable with these people around me that I'm creating with and how much I cherish their voices. And so, um, yeah, no, I feel really like, you know, this year aside, I, I just feel like really positive about the future and music feels magical again. And, um, I don't know what it holds for touring and how long this is going to last, but, uh, yeah, I don't, it doesn't feel so shaky anymore where it's just like, we're just trying to hold on. And like, like, I feel like it felt like a skittish raccoon Mm. for a long time or something that was just like following 
breadcrumbs to the trash can. It doesn't feel that way right now, at least. So excited for that. I love, <laughs> I love that, uh, that metaphor. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do feel like I'm not sure if I'm just having a little bit of Stockholm syndrome with the pandemic or if I'm, you know, just high off the fact that it was 64 degrees today. <laughs> both. But yeah, yeah, maybe it's a little bit of both. You need that vitamin D. I'm just okay. Yeah. It's just like we're here. We're going to do the best we can. And like it is sink or swim and like fuck it. I'm, I'm going to swim. Yeah. That's brave um, and that's beautiful. And uh, yeah, artists need to give each other more support. And I've, I've found that this last year, like in people reaching out you know, with the means that we have with social media and, and, and finding new friends that I cannot wait to see in person, you know, it's going to be great. Anatomy of an Artist is a podcast created, recorded, and edited by me, Verite. It was produced by Vanessa Magos with the help of Yesenia Bonilla. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.